We're uh, beginning a new series this morning called Hurts, Hesitations, and Hang-Ups, Addressing Obstacles to the Christian Faith. Uh, the reality is that many people, um, unfortunately, have been hurt by the church. They're hesitant about the Christian faith, faith or they have hang-ups with following Jesus. And um, maybe that was your story, or maybe that is your story. Maybe that's really where you're at. Uh, and because of your hurts, hesitations, and hang-ups, it's hard for you to see the church as a good thing. Uh, it's difficult for you to listen to Christians, and you can't take seriously the Christian faith. Maybe that's where you're at. And I just want to say, you know what, I actually understand that. I really do. I, I get that. And this series is really about honoring uh, your hurts, uh, talking about your hesitations, and addressing your hang-ups. And so over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at some different topics. We're going to be talking about whitewashed Christianity, how it's difficult for our brothers and sisters of color sometimes to look at the Christian faith and take it seriously because it feels like it's been whitewashed by white culture. We're also going to look at the church's history with money. If you turn on the television, you'll see people making promises if you would just send in $5 more. And that has really turned a lot of people off. Uh, and today, though, we're going to be talking about bad religion. Bad religion. Uh, religion's a word that many different people use in different ways. And, and some people say Christianity isn't a religion, it's a relationship. And I think that's true on some level. But James chapter 1 also says that true religion is this. It's sitting with widows and orphans in their affliction and remaining unstained from the world. So that word religion isn't necessarily bad uh, in and of itself, but I think what makes religion bad and why people get frustrated by religion is when religious people also are self-righteous people. When religious people are self-righteous people. And the reality is if you've encountered self-righteous people, you probably have hurts, hesitations, and hang-ups about the Christian faith. And so because God is unseen and people are representing God and they're self-righteous, what you get exposed to is self-righteous people displaying the unseen God. And that can definitely lead to hurts, hang-ups, and hesitations. And that's what we're going to talk about today from Philippians 3. I'm going to pray for us and then read God's word. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would work today, that you might show people who you are, that if there is self-righteousness in us, that you would change us and you would expel it with your love, that you might teach us today who you really are and that you might be glorified. And all God's people said, amen. We're reading Philippians 3, 1 through 16. Paul is in prison, and he writes this. In addition, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. To write to you again about this is no trouble for me and is a safeguard for you. Watch out for the dogs. Watch out for the evil workers. Watch out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision. The ones who worship by the Spirit of God boast in Christ Jesus and do not put confidence in the flesh. Although I have reasons for confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he has grounds for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised the eighth day 
of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, regarding the law, God's law, a Pharisee, regarding zeal, persecuting the church, regarding the righteousness that is in the law, blameless. But everything that was a gain to me, I have considered to be a loss because of Christ. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things and considered them as dung. So that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. My goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. Not that I have already reached the goal or am already perfect, but I make every effort to take hold of it because I also have been taken hold of by Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and reaching forward to what is ahead, I pursue as my goal the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let all of us who are mature think this way. And if you think differently about anything, God will reveal this also to you. In any case, we should live up to whatever truth we have attained. The Word of God. You know, it's funny, when I talk to people in our city, and as soon as they find out I'm a pastor, the first thing they say is that they're spiritual, but not religious. Okay, so you know that phrase. They're spiritual, but not religious. And I think what they're trying to communicate to me is, listen, I have this deep longing inside of myself to connect to something bigger than myself, to be part of a community that is connected to something bigger. But I have not found that connection in organized religion. I think that's what they're trying to say. But I always joke with them, I say, well, you should come to New City because we're not very organized in our religion. (laughs) But I really do think that people have this deep longing to be part of a community and have purpose and be connected to something greater, but they have not found it in organized religion. And I mean, let's be honest, who could blame you? I mean, the amount of sex scandals we see in the church, the abuses of money, the cover-ups, Organized religion has hurt people in many ways, and so why would they be a part of it? But not only on top of that, organized religion seems to be so messed up, and yet at the same time, people in organized religion are so self-righteous. So there's these self-righteous people who think and act like they're better than everyone else, but they have worse problems than the rest of us. They're not willing to listen to someone of a different opinion. They just want to tell you what they believe. And so organized religion is bad because it produces self-righteous people who aren't really righteous at all. They're a mess. And people respond differently to organized religion. Some run, like, I'm out of here. I'm done. I've, I've seen enough. I'm running. Some say, tone it down. Listen, I know that you strongly believe what you believe about your religion, but just take it down a notch. Don't be so intense about it. Tone it down. And still others say, that's not enough. Don't tone it down, shut it down. 
Religion is a blight in our society. It's immoral. It hurts people. Let's shut it down completely. I can understand why people respond in that way. I really can. I really can because of their experience, of what they've experienced in the midst of organized religion. But here's an unsolved issue. It isn't just organized religion that produces self-righteous people. Religion can be bad in the sense that it makes people very self-righteous. It can do that. But if you take away organized religion, the problem we have is people are still self-righteous. People can still be incredibly self-righteous. You can be self-righteous about your politics or your ideology. You can be smug about where you're from. You can be pompous about the job you have or you don't have. Human beings are pretentious about how much they know. We can be haughty about our style or our body type or how fit we are. And we can even be self-righteous about not being self-righteous. I'm not self-righteous like everybody else is. And we can take a good thing and turn it into something to be self-righteous about. I work hard. I'm not greedy. I'm woke. I serve the poor. I'm an inspiration to others. I'm not a basket case. I'm from this place, and thank God I'm not from that place. In a New York Times article, author Todd May said that we often tell ourselves stories to make ourselves look good. He says that we live in an echo chamber that reflect the righteousness of our lives back to us. And these stories and echo chambers serve the purpose of telling us that we're superior and right. In other words, we just repeat this story in our mind that we're the good ones. We're the right ones. I'm an acceptable human being because I'm not like other people because fill in the blank. And see, that's just it. We, we do have these deep longings in us to be right and to be acceptable. We want to do and be on the right side of things, but there's also something in us that wants to prove that others aren't. They're not on the right side of things. There's a buzzword going around right now called virtue signaling. And virtue signaling is when people pretend to embody a virtue, but they don't ever actually embody that virtue. So this comes up around MLK Day. On MLK Day, everyone posts something about MLK, but no one has posted or read or thought about MLK the rest of the year. No one's thought about racial equality or this idea of reconciliation and being, God, being a beloved community, but they'll signal that they believe those things. And it's not just an MLK thing, it's a heart thing. We always do that. We signal virtue, even though if we don't embody the virtue. We know that these deep longings to be right and acceptable are in us because it's really hard to get away from even when we talk about self-righteousness. We believe that we are not self-righteous like everybody else is, right? We believe that we're not self-righteous like everybody else is. And you see, that's terribly self-righteous. It's terribly self-righteous. And even if you say, I may be self-righteous, but at least I see that I may be self-righteous and they don't, that's still self-righteous. We can't really get away from it. It's in our hearts. Some have said that self-righteousness is like bad breath. Once you start talking, everybody knows you have it except you. And self-righteous can be, though, particularly harmful coming from organized religion because organized religion is said to represent God. 
And when people are hurt by organized religion, it's particularly damaging. But self-righteousness also exists in every human heart. Every human heart. Our hearts are deeply proud and insecure at the exact same time. Our hearts struggle with hiding the bad in us and yet wanting to be good. We want to cover over the sense of inadequacy that we all feel on some level. We want to find something in us that we can declare is worthy of declaring us righteous and acceptable. And that's what Paul's talking about when he uses this term, confidence in the flesh. In our, in our passage, he, uses, he lists all the reasons that he could be confident in who he was, that he could be self-righteous, that he could be declared an acceptable human being. He says this, All I have re- although I have reasons for confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he has grounds for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And Paul's about to share with us his resume as a Jewish man. The first thing he says is that he was circumcised on the eighth day. What that means is that at the very first initiation opportunity he had to become part of the Jewish people, he was in. A mark was put on his body on the eighth day after his birth, and he was part of the community. He didn't come later. His parents weren't converted later. He was born into the Jewish faith. He was of the nation of Israel. He was ethnically Jewish. His parents weren't Gentiles who converted at a later date. They were faithful Jews and had been part of the, part of the Jewish people, just like his grandparents and great-grandparents. But not only that, he's from the tribe of Benjamin, a notable tribe within the people of God, the tribe that produced the first king in the people of God, the tribe that remained loyal to King David. He was from that tribe, a Hebrew born of Hebrews. Paul is letting us know that his ethnic pedigree is unmatched. Now, that might not matter to you, but that was a big deal back then. Being able to list all those things about yourself was quite a resume. Paul's ethnic pedigree was unmatched, but he doesn't stop there. He lets us see that his professional resume is unparalleled regarding the law of Pharisee. Paul had been trained at the feet of the great Pharisee Gamaliel, who was a leader of the Jewish people. Paul had studied under him, had learned the law under him, and himself became a Pharisee, part of the strictest sect that followed God's law. They they measured everything out to make sure that they were abiding by the law on every detail. Not only that, Paul says, I was so into God's law and his commandments that I had so much zeal for it, I persecuted the church. I was so devout that when these early Christians claimed that the Messiah had come and that God's kingdom was now visible on earth, I stepped in to shut it down because God's movement on earth is through his law, not through Jesus. So Paul's telling us he had zeal that was followed by other people. Regarding the righteousness that is the law, I was blameless. He was so devout that if you looked at God's law and you looked at Paul's life, it matched. It seemed to match. Paul followed the law. From our view, he has every reason to feel as though he's an acceptable human being. He's righteous. He was not like other people. He had an ethnic pedigree that was unmatched. He had a a resume that was unparalleled. His devoutness to God was unquestioned. He was distinguished. Paul had all these reasons to be confident. Confident in his status, 
confident in his performance, confident in his flesh. He had all these reasons to be righteous about himself, to be self-righteous. If this were accounting, there would be no liabilities or debits, just income and gains. If this were sports, his stats would show him as a league leader. If this were design, his portfolio would make jaws drop. But then Paul says something interesting. Paul says that although he has many reasons to put confidence in all of this, he puts no confidence in it. And encourage you to not put any confidence in your flesh and your status and what you think makes you righteous either. It's as if all that pedigree and reputation and status doesn't matter as much now for Paul because he's compared it to something greater. This past week, I took my kids to the arcade. And uh, when I was a kid, you just put quarters or tokens in the arcade. Now they give you these cards. You, you prepay, you get a card. And you go to the arcade game and you swipe it. And then you get to play the arcade and it, it, it subtracts a credit. But they still do this ticket thing. Do you remember when you played skee-ball and you get the ball in and then the tickets would come out and it was just kind of addicting. You just, more tickets, I need more tickets. Well, they, they do that now, but they don't use the actual tickets. They just put the ticket credit back on your card. So my kids and I played arcade games for about an hour, and then we went into that store. You know, the arcade store that has nothing of value, and yet you want everything in the store? So we go into the store, and uh, we hand our three different cards to the lady behind the counter, and I say, you know, what, what do we got? How many tickets do we have on these cards? And she says, 170 which was a little bit of a letdown because we had looked all over the store and realized that although the store spanned from this wall to this wall, we were quarantined down to the far left side of the counter. I told my kids, look, you can get two Tootsie Rolls, a plastic fairy, and a butterfly, and that's it. But then this couple walked up to us and said, listen, we would like to give you our cards with all the tickets on them. And I said, well, how, how, many, how many tickets do you have on your cards? And they said, 5,000. 170. All of a sudden, we had 5,000. All of a sudden, my cards with 170 on them, while they were valuable, they didn't seem to matter as much. And I looked around at all this stuff we didn't need and stepped up to the counter, and I said, we'll take one of everything. Compared to what the, their cards were worth, our cards didn't matter as much. And maybe in a sense, Paul is saying that, like there's two valuable things and one's just worth a lot more. Except that's not what Paul's saying at all. Paul's not saying there's two things that are valuable and one's just worth more. Uh, Paul uses much stronger language than that. Paul says in verse 7, but everything that I thought was a gain to me, I've considered to be a loss because of Christ. It wasn't two valuable things. It was one valuable thing and everything else was loss. That isn't just of less worth than he thought, but all that confidence he had in his pedigree and resume and devoutness were not at all in the income and gains column, but in the liability and debt column. They were actually damaging. Why? 
Why would Paul say that? I mean, we don't resonate with his, his resume, but we're all trying to get our resume together. Now, whether it's professionally or our status in life or trying to be a good person, isn't Paul an example of someone who's got it all together? In his context, doesn't he have his life the way he wanted it? Doesn't he show his worth as an individual? Isn't he making it? Paul says he considers it loss. And in verse 8 through 9, he takes it even further. He says, more than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things and considered them as dung, so that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. As Paul writes, he says that at the present moment in his life, he considers not just his resume, but all things to be lost compared to the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ. The point of Paul's life had been a self-righteousness attained through religious fervor. But now, it's knowing Jesus and having a relationship with him. And that has changed everything Everything that Paul thought was valuable is now not just less valuable, but incredibly detrimental. It's lost to him. And everything that he thought was invaluable, namely knowing Jesus, has become the very center point of his life, unmatched in worthiness. Paul uses strong language. In fact, he says that all things are dung are dung. And some translations call them rubbish, but the Bible translators are trying to keep us from blushing because Paul is using a word that is close to a word that we tell our children not to use. Paul is saying that all those things that he used to rely on for his acceptability, his righteousness, his sense of worthiness before God, they're all a pile of, and I'm not going to say it, but you know what he's saying. Paul so strongly sees all these things that I rely on now as dung and rubbish. Why? Because it's worthless compared to knowing Jesus. It's worthless compared to knowing Jesus and being united to him and no longer having to come up with a righteousness that comes from himself, but being given the righteousness of Jesus. Paul is teaching us about the core Christian doctrine called justification or being declared righteous. See, every human being is out on some level to prove that they are a righteous human being. But Jesus, who actually was righteous and perfect, died in our place on the cross. Therefore, our moral debt to God for sin is canceled because it was put on Jesus. But the gospel doesn't stop there. Jesus, the righteous one, who lives a perfect life, perfectly loving God, loving his neighbor, yet dies as a sinner, gives us his record of righteousness. It's a righteousness that doesn't come from our own obedience, but is given to us through faith by God. The scandal of Christianity is that God has looked at Jesus on the cross and said, sinner, and looked at you and I and said, forgiven and righteous. Paul 
writes in 2 Corinthians 5.21, He who knew no sin became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And therefore, Paul no longer has to prove that he is righteous and acceptable because Jesus Christ has given him his status of righteousness. See, your status before God has nothing to do with your resume. It has nothing to do with your religious fervor. It has nothing to do with your devoutness or anything that you think makes you an acceptable human being. It has nothing to do with how you compare to others. Rather, it fully rests in what Christ has done for you. You are forgiven and declared righteous by God when you are united to Jesus Christ. See, this is where we get confused whether you're religious or irreligious. The core of the Christian faith is not about what we do for God. It's about what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And that's bizarre and it's scandalous because that doesn't sound like religion at all. Religion is all about outward conforming, like trying hard and pushing and trying to get close to God. And what the gospel of Jesus Christ says is that God has done everything you need to do to make you acceptable to him. That doesn't sound like religion. That sounds like unreligion. Dane Ortland writes this. The ancient Greeks told us to be moderate by knowing our inclinations. The Romans told us to be strong by ordering our lives. Buddhism tells us to be disillusioned by annihilating our consciences. Hinduism tells us to be absorbed by merging our souls. Islam tells us to be submissive by submitting our wills. Agnosticism tells us to be at peace by ignoring our doubts. Moralism tells us to be good by discharging our obligations. Only the gospel tells us to be free by acknowledging our failure. Christianity is the unreligion because it is the one faith whose founder tells us to bring not our doing, but our need. Christianity is not a religion based on religiosity. Rather, it is a faith that's built on weakness, not strength. Sinning rather than being perfect, but knowing and trusting in what Jesus has done for you, not what you have done for God. It's not really a religion at all in the traditional sense because it's saying everything that you need to be part of this has already been accomplished for you. You're unacceptable, but Jesus makes you acceptable. You're you're sinful, but you're forgiven in Christ. You're not righteous, but Jesus gives you his righteousness. And for Paul, that changes everything. That changes everything for Paul. Paul has all the reasons to say, I've got it together. I'm righteous. I'm acceptable. But his whole life trajectory has now changed now that he has this freedom. He says that his goal is no longer having a righteousness of his own, a status made by his achievements. It is no longer religion as we talk about it, but relationship with Jesus Christ. My goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. 
Paul's saying that his goal is no longer proving he's right. It's no longer showing his acceptability or striving with religious fervor. Rather, it's to have a close, tight-knit relationship with Jesus who has come back to life from the dead. And to see the power of Jesus' resurrection unleashed in his life to make Paul a totally new human being. And to say say no to his sin that Jesus died for in order to know and live for Jesus in such a way that he finds utter joy in becoming like Jesus. See, that is the amazing thing about relationship with Jesus. Where religiosity attempts to change things from the outside in, the Christian faith is all about Jesus entering in and changing you from the inside out. It's doing what you don't have the power to do in your own life so that you begin to do and think and love what Jesus did and and thought and loved so that even as Jesus perfectly loved God and perfectly loved his neighbor that actually begins to bubble up in your life by his power your affection for God grows your willingness to lay down your life for your neighbor grows you're not religious at all you're a suicide bomber of love who's trying to share the love that Jesus has poured into your heart with a broken world the new goal of knowing Jesus but the amazing thing about Paul is that it produces a new humility in him. A new radical humility, which is the exact opposite of self-righteousness. Rather than seeing himself above others, it is seeing himself below others as their servant. Because he knows that he has Jesus living inside of him. He doesn't have to live for status. Who cares about status? Because he has a righteous status before God. Because the power of Christ is at work in him. He can admit that he's spiritually powerless. Look at how he talks in verse 11 and 12. Assuming that somehow I will reach the resurrection from among the dead. Not that I have already reached the goal or am already perfect, but I make every effort to take hold of it because I have also been taken hold of by Christ Jesus. When Paul was confident in his flesh, he believed he had it all. Now Paul is free to admit that he doesn't have it all together and somehow him, Paul, will reach the resurrection of the dead. He'll get to participate fully with Jesus in the renewal of all things. And he hasn't reached that goal yet. He's not perfect by any means. But even in his imperfections and even with his own struggles with sin and even in his own brokenness, he's going to keep striving to walk with Jesus. And here's why. Because Jesus Christ has taken hold of Paul. In Paul's self-righteousness, he was on his way to kill Christians on that Damascus road. He was persecuting them. He was ready to kill more. And Jesus Christ appeared to him and confronted Paul in his unrighteousness, forgave him, taught him what he didn't know that he didn't know, breathed new life into Paul's brittle soul, and forever changed him with new life. And so Paul can say, I'm going to reach forward for Jesus because Jesus has taken hold of me. He continues in verse 13 and 14 and says, brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it. I'm not there yet. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and reaching forward to what is ahead, I pursue as my goal the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. I'm not there yet. But Jesus is here with me. 
I'm not perfect, but the perfect one loves me. I'm not better than anybody else, but I know the one who loves everybody else. And so I'm striving, I'm doing my whole life, my one goal is to know him better. And all this new life that he has breathed into me, Paul says, I'm persevering now, I wanna share it with you and I want you to walk with me. And I'm walking by faith knowing that one day God will finish renewing me and will make the entire world new. And so I forget all that stuff, all that status seeking, all that righteousness I thought I could produce on my own. I want to live as a person who Jesus is alive in right now. And Paul ends with this. He says, therefore, let all of us who are mature think this way. And if you think differently about anything, God will reveal this also to you. In any case, we should live up to whatever truth we have attained. This is Paul who killed you if you disagreed with him. Now he's saying, listen, maturity is not about self-righteousness, but about pursuing relationship with Jesus. But even if you don't agree with me, that's all right. That's all right. Because I'm convinced that how God has convinced me, he will also work and convince you, cultivating in you a deep desire not to be self-righteous, but to know Jesus. to be changed by him through faith that produces love. I mean, do you hear the gentleness in Paul's tone? Do you see how he's completely honest about his lack of righteousness, his lack of perfection? Do you see how the very core of what he's pursuing isn't religious in the traditional sense? It's relationship. It's knowing Jesus Christ and inviting others to do the same, walking together in relationship with each other as they pursue Jesus together. Paul has a radical new humility, a radical new goal, and it's all around knowing Jesus. So what do you take from this? What do you take from this? Well, I want to warn you, watch out for religiosity. Watch out for self-righteous religion. Paul says in Philippians 3.2, watch out for the dogs. Watch out for the evil workers. Watch out for those who mutilate the flesh. He's warning them. Listen, there are people who are going to tell you that this is all about religion from the outside in. But it's not. It's Jesus changing you from the inside out. So watch out for self-righteous religion because it exists, but it is not the Christian faith. It is not the Christian faith. And so listen, I'm going to invite you, if you've written off the Christian faith because you have experienced it as a self-righteous religion of rules, you actually haven't experienced true gospel Christianity. If you haven't been so excited about what Jesus has done for you that everything else in your life seems a distant, distant second, it's possible that you've experienced organized religiosity, but not Jesus Christ. Watch out for self-righteous righteous religiosity. But secondly, watch your response to self-righteous religiosity. Watch your response to self-righteous religiosity. Our hearts want to respond by toning it down, running away, or shutting it down. Because you may have gotten rid of organized religiosity, that doesn't mean that your own self-righteous heart has been changed. Our temptation is to say, they're wrong, therefore I'm out and I must be right. 
But in that, your own heart has not been changed. Your heart hasn't been met on the inside and deeply changed by the love of God in Jesus and the righteousness that comes to you as a free gift through faith. So the answer isn't to tone it down or walk away, but this, to know Jesus. To know Jesus. Jesus is so righteous that he lived the perfect life you should have lived. But he loves you so much that he died the death you deserve to die. And he's so powerful that in his death and resurrection, you're made alive. And I would invite you today to turn to him and let him take hold of you, just as Paul found Jesus taking hold of him. I'll end with this. Blaise Pascal was a scientist and a scholar in the 17th century, and he was noted for his scientific and mathematic work and his inventions. He was nominally religious, but he had a lot of life accomplishments. Despite all of his successes, though, none of those successes became the defining thing in his life. The defining thing in his life actually became one moment from one night a moment where he first encountered relationship with Jesus Christ. On November 23rd in the year 1654, from 10.30 p.m. till 12.30 in the morning, something happened that forever changed Blaise Pascal. A man who could have stood on his laurels, a man who had every reason to think he was an acceptable human being because of what he had contributed to humanity. We have what he wrote that night on a piece of parchment about his first experience of relationship with Jesus. This is what he wrote. The year of grace, 1654, Monday, 23rd November, from about half past 10 in the evening until half past 12, fire. God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of the philosophers and savants, certitude, certitude, feeling, joy, peace, God of Jesus Christ, my God and thy God, thy God shall be my God, forgetfulness of the world and of everything except God. He is to be found only in the ways taught in the gospel, grandeur of the human soul, righteous father, the world hath not known thee, but I have known thee, joy, 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 tears of joy, I have fallen from him. May I not fall from him forever. This is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, I have fallen away. I have fled him, denied him, crucified him. But may I not fall away from him forever. We hold him only by the ways taught in the gospel. Renunciation total and sweet, total submission to Jesus and and my Lord eternally in joy for a day's exercise on earth. I will not forget thy word. Amen. Blaise Pascal, the articulate scientist, had all these reasons to think of everything else in his life, but this becomes the defining moment in his life where he has a relational experience with Jesus Christ. And this articulate scientist is so joyful, all he can do is write babble about the joy he finds in relationship and Jesus Christ working in his life. It's amazing that an articulate scientist just seems to ramble in awe about being in relationship with Jesus. And amazing that this man of status doesn't look at his status as his life's great accomplishment, but rather this encounter with Christ. Amazing that this man who had been nominally religious before was taken hold of by Jesus Christ and it changed him forever. So much so that when Blaise Pascal died, 
they found in his coat this note, sewed in his jacket, right over his heart. This note about Jesus Christ taking hold of him. Today, I just say this as I close. Are you writing off religion because of self-righteous people? Don't let that keep you from a life-changing relationship of Jesus Christ grabbing hold of you. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you for your son. We thank you that you come to us in our self-righteousness and you change us. Lord, I pray that you might use today an experience of your word to show people really who Jesus is and that where we have erred as the church, Lord, we might be humbled and, and willing to repent, Lord. But that in this, Lord, Jesus, you might show yourself to be good and loving and faithful and welcoming of sinners and the broken. And all God's people said, amen. Will you stand with me?